The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many of you know that we've been looking at this topic of equanimity the last several weeks and probably continue through August on this topic. It's the last of the ten paramis, this list of the beautiful qualities of the heart that we've been working on for the last two years. So we're just finishing up now this month. And equanimity is a really wonderful quality and to end up this long uh, discussion on the beautiful qualities of the heart. Because it really uh, points directly toward freedom. And it's really the essence of this whole path and what makes it different than our ordinary worldly pursuits. You know, normally as we're going about our day, we're not, we may think we are, but we're not really trying to be free. We're trying to get something or get rid of something. I mean, that's mostly what we're doing in the day, during the day. And equanimity points to a different paradigm or a different way of being in the world. So instead of Mark trying to get something out of life, it's attempt to be free in the moment, to be free with the way things are, no matter how they are. So it's an exploration of freedom. And we're interested in the freedom that's here now. We're not interested in the freedom that I might attain later, you know, after I do everything right or after I overcome all my bad personality habits. But we're interested in a freedom that is available here and now. And that's a different approach to any given moment of our life. Because almost always, in any moment, you know, you can just think, bring to mind some of the moments from today. And, you know, almost every moment we're involved in some kind of struggle to get to something, you know, even to get to freedom, but to get to some place where we'll have something that we don't have now, or we'll be done with something that we don't like when we, you know, when we accomplish, when we get rid of. But how about, how about an interest in being free and then all of our human activity to get things and to get rid of things, because we're not out of that as a human being. You know, we're still in this world of acquisition and getting rid of things and fixing things and manipulating things. But now it won't be about happiness because we've discovered, we've realized the freedom here and now. So then our activity in the world has to be about something else. You know, you can call it a more pure expression of compassion or love in the world. That's what our activity in the world is about because we're, through our practice or through our understanding, we're feeling content and happy and peaceful and free in the midst of the crazy or what might seem incomplete world that we're experiencing or the incomplete moment that we're experiencing. And so that's really the orientation in our sitting practice, too. 
it's very easy to get confused in meditation to think that, okay, I'm here to make my mind a particular way. It's easy to get confused because there's some, you know, there's different ways, different strategies. But in the end, that understanding, that idea that I'm here practicing meditation in order to get someplace, like calm, sort of misses the point. Because the real point is to deeply understand that I'm here. You know, the experience of the body is like this. The experience of this mind is like this. And then to get really close, really intimate, really receptive with how it is, this body and mind. But with this particular reflection, what is freedom? How might freedom be experienced here and now? Not like postponing, not with the idea that we have to postpone freedom until the negativity in our mind disappears, or the pain in the knee disappears, or the sit is over and I can stretch out my legs, or it warms up because it's so cold, or it cools down because it's so hot. But how can this heart be free, unburdened, not resisting, not reacting, here and now? So the, in this way, the practice is really simple. We're just dropping in, relaxing into the moment as it actually is with this intention. This is the active part of meditation. The passive part of meditation is we're just relaxing into the present moment. That's almost like, in a sense, the mind is it's giving itself over to gravity. You know, the natural gravity of the mind is to drop into the present moment. We actually have to work to disconnect from the present moment. We have to, you know, think or add lay layers of complications, complicated thoughts, in order to disconnect. So the natural gravitational pull, the passive part of meditation, is a resting in the experience of the mind and body. The active part of meditation or wisdom is holding or maintaining or remembering the possibility of being free as we more deeply rest, as we more deeply feel how it is now, or sensitive to how it is now. Can the heart be free of reactivity, for example, free of resistance? free of judgment, free of turning the moment into good or bad. doesn't mean we're disconnected from the moment, but the mind, heart, isn't doing anything extra. That's the remembering. That's the active part. And we have to actively look because we deeply appreciate how much momentum there is for reactivity. So just because there doesn't seem to be any reactivity, we've got to really look, is there? Is the mind resisting? Is the body resisting, reacting, leaning forward, retreating? Or is it completely open and porous and transparent? The Buddha has a beautiful teaching many of you have heard. gets repeated quite a bit. The eight worldly winds or the vicissitudes of life, sometimes it's called. And the Buddha is just describing how it is for human beings. And he's comparing sort of worldly beings. He calls them, what does he call them? Uh, it's on the other page here. Uninstructed worldlings. <laughs> that means you and me. <laughs> We're uninstructed worldlings, meaning 
mostly we're living our life based on our cultural conditioning, our instinctual and cultural conditioning, which basically is this, uh, you know, kind of beastly mentality. You know, we're beasts looking for food, beasts looking for a mate, beasts looking for danger and trying to avoid danger. That's how we are in the world, you know. And now as human beings, it's not just physical survival that obsesses us, but we also have this whole sense of psychology, uh, like a psychological self or a psyche that we're also protecting. Just as much as my body, I'm protecting my sense of self, too. It's like we've got this extra body that's vulnerable, you know, and it, it makes it uh, makes us <laughs> probably exponentially more neurotic than a more simple beast that only is concerned with their body and the survival of the body. So we're uninstructed worldlings. And as uninstructed worldlings, these eight worldly winds uh, push us around. And uh, Buddha talks about gain and loss, fame and disrepute, uh, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. These are the eight worldly winds that blow us around. So when we feel pleasure, the primitive mind, you know, the conditioning or habit energy, grabs a hold of that pleasurable experience. Ah, you know, either my psyche or my body's got what it wants. Ah, or if it's pain, you know, ah, this is a threat to my psyche, to my body. I've got to run, I've got to hide, I've got to distract, I've got to destroy it somehow. So at the end of this talk, the Buddha, as it was sometimes the habit at the time, uh, put some up, summed up his teaching teachings in a little poem or verse. So he says, loss and gain, dispute and fame, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. These things are transient in human life, inconstant and bound to change. The mindful wise one discerns them well. Observant of their alterations, Pleasant things do not stir her mind. And those unpleasant do not annoy her. All likes and dislikes are dispelled by her, eliminated and abolished. Aware now of the stainless, griefless state, she fully knows having gone beyond. Oh, and those unpleasant do not annoy her. So pleasant things do not stir her mind, and those unpleasant do not annoy her. All likes and dislikes are dispelled by her, eliminated and abolished. So this is pointing to a more complete or deep state of equanimity. And that may seem sort of far away, but What's not far away, what we all know is times when our mind is very much ruled by likes and dislikes, and times when our mind isn't so ruled by likes and dislikes. Where there's, there's a happiness of neutrality. It's a happiness of the mind not doing that extra thing, not creating and then making it important, likes and dislikes. So, for example, we could be sitting here and sort of noticing the people around us 
And you know how we are sometimes compelled. It's almost like we're ranking everybody in the room. This is a person I'd like to get to know. This is a person I definitely don't want to get to know. This is a person I'd really like to get to know. Or something like that. And the interesting thing about that is it's really exhausting for the mind to be engaged in that comparing, that analyzing, that judgment. And, you know, we're doing the same thing with ourselves, you know. Is that person better than me? Am I better than that person? All of this self-centered analytical stuff, the mind goes. So we're turning the world into likes and dislikes. Like when you're driving home, you know, whatever it is for you, it might be people's outfits, it might be cars, it might be lawn ornaments. But whatever it is for you, you know, that sort of uh, pushes your buttons, then see if you have a choice. Like when you see an interesting lawn ornament in somebody's yard, you know, and let's say you have an obsession about lawn ornaments, and you see it. Now, with your ordinary eyes, with the eyes of your conditioned mind, you know, coming out of your upbringing, you have a particular tendency, like, I would never put that in my yard. They must be idiots. Or, that's cool, you know? Why didn't I think of that? I want one of those. I wonder where they got it. Do I dare ask? Would they be upset if I have one in my yard, too? You know, all these kinds of thoughts can come up. But we can, so we, we can assume, and what we tend to assume is that because we have a conditioned mind, that's who I am. So there's nothing I can do about it. But actually, we can notice that that tendency to turn lawn ornaments into good or bad, I like it, I don't like it, that's just a habit. And it's just what it is. It's just thinking. And we can practice seeing it as not me, not mine, not who I am. It's just a natural phenomena being known in the mind. And then once we've um, basically unhooked, so the mind isn't grasping or fixing, it's not tensing around that thought. I like that ornament. I don't like that ornament. But it's just, then it begins to experience the equanimity. Oh, it's just seen. It's just this. The mind, because of the habit, it might feel the sort of energetic tendency to react or judge it. or But it feels the impulse without acting it out. Just like somebody could really ins insult me, and I might actually have the impulse to punch them. But I haven't hit somebody in a long time. And probably that's true for most of us here. But we still have the impulse to hit, right? So this can happen on a very subtle level. We can have the impulse to think, the impulse to turn things into mine, what I want, what I don't want. We can have the impulse to take things personally without acting out that impulse. Just because we have the conditioning to see things and take things personally doesn't mean we have to act it out. We act it out because we think it's appropriate to think this way, don't we? It seems appropriate to see the world in terms of what I like and what I don't like. In a way, we, we, we don't respect this alternative. It's funny. We haven't really thought about it, most of us, clearly. But a lot of us are deeply suspicious of equanimity. 
And oftentimes, and maybe it will happen tonight too, people raise questions like, well, equanimity sounds like you're being disengaged from the world. You're disinterested. You don't care about the world. I'm not interested in that kind of life. I do care about the world. I think we should be concerned about this world. And I do too. I think it's important to be full of compassion and to be responsive, to act with compassion, to act with wisdom in the world. I don't think it's helpful to hide from the world. But what I think is what really allows us to be responsive is to learn that the habit energy, taking things personally, seeing things in terms of what I like and dislike, that is not the only way to go through life. We can go through life still having preferences. It's not like we can make those preferences go away. It's like if you've been conditioned to like certain lawn ornaments and not like others, it's not going to, that's not going to change. Even if you become enlightened, you know, you, that conditioning that's been set in motion, it probably will still have some momentum in your mind. Some things will be pleasant to you. Some things will be unpleasant to you. The Buddha, I'm sure, I'm, at least from my understanding, some things were really pleasant for him and some things were really unpleasant for him. But the question is, when the mind of the Buddha experienced pleasant or unpleasant sights, sounds, sensations, thoughts, what did the mind do? He might have had the impulse to react, but he didn't. Just like I might have the impulse to say bad things to my wife when I'm really angry. But mostly I restrain myself because I know it's not helpful. And we can do this in a very subtle internal way too. We can, uh, because we care about our life and we care about the mind, we care about our heart, the mind and heart can restrain itself from doing things that are harmful. Just like we've learned to restrain ourselves, you know, when we were three and four, I don't know about you, I grew up with brothers and sisters, and when I was three and four and I got upset, I would hit. That's just what I did. You know, we would hit. They'd make me angry and I'd hit them. But now we don't do that. So this is the great thing about the human mind. It's literally infinitely trainable. Or another way to think about it, whatever this mind is doing, it's just doing because it's been trained to do this. You know? So if it can be trained to do this, it can be trained to do something else. But we just have to pay careful attention. And with the, you know, with this uh, intention not to suffer. And with that intention not to suffer and the close attention, the close looking at the experience of the mind, we begin to tease out. We begin to let go of what's complicated. The mind becomes more and more simple. It's the sim simplicity is really an expression of wisdom. Sharon Salzberg has a, a couple of great pages in her chapter. She has a book called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Find it a very useful manual. So if you're interested in this path of practice, um, I recommend that's a good book to have on hand. Uh, there's a couple, but that's one of them. 
And in that book, she has a chapter on equanimity. And she tells a story that's in the suttas, in the discourses of the Buddha, where a person shows up at the monastery and asks a question. And he just happened to ask a question to a monk who had just come out of a deep meditation. So the monk didn't respond to him. And the man got furious. And because the monk didn't respond to his question, he stormed out of the monastery or to the woods where they were practicing. The next day, this man came back, asked the same question to another monk. And this is a, a more uh, articulate, uh, kind of scholarly monk. And he gave a long, very detailed, careful answer to the man's question. And the man was furious that his answer was so long and so detailed and so involved. And he stormed out of the monastery. And then he came back the third day. And this day, he ran into Ananda, a famous character from the time of the Buddha, who was the Buddha's attendant for many years and also a cousin of the Buddha. And Ananda had heard about what had happened the previous two days. So he thought, OK, I'm going to give him a middle length, not too much, not too little. And so he did that. And the man was furious with him for sort of handling it so lightly, you know, and stormed out. And so they, the three of them were confused. They decided they'd go ask the Buddha, you know, how they should have handled this guy. And the Buddha said, there is always blame in this world. If you say too much, some people will blame you. If you say a little, a little bit, some will blame you. If you say nothing at all, some people will blame you. So understanding this, you know, understanding that maybe there is some room, you know, there is some room to be skillful, to be competent in life, like what choices we make, where we choose to live, who we choose to be around, how we choose to spend our time. But no matter how competent we are in making the wise choices, we're not totally in control. Life is not completely governable, and we realize that. Sharon Salzberg goes on after telling the story from the sutta that I just explained. She says, this is the very nature of life. No one in this world experiences only pleasure and no pain. And no one experiences only gain and no loss. When we open to this truth, we discover that there is no need to hold on or to push away. Rather, rather than trying to control what can never be controlled, we can find a sense of security in being able to meet what is actually happening. This allowing for the mystery of things, not judging, but rather cultivating a balance of mind that can, be, that can receive what is happening, whatever it is, this acceptance is the source of our safety and confidence. Now, this is really important. It's kind of the theme for tonight, and we can share from each other's experience in a few minutes. This theme, like where, where can a human being actually find safety? Where, what is a true refuge, a safe place? Because of course, you know, from our beastly animal point of view, safety means you know we have a fortress to live in, with a lot of food in the cellar, you know, and great weapons. You know, how many nuclear warheads does the United States have? You know, think about how many big ships with really big guns we have. You know, and 
in everything else that we have. And then not only that, but people have their own weapons, their own ways of protecting themselves. You know, and some people have Swiss bank accounts, and other people have, you know, generators with a storehouse of fuel in case the whole grid goes down. And some people have homes in the country with their own orchard and their own food stored away. And you know, back in the 60s, people dug their own fallout shelters. So where is the end of this, this kind of security? You know, and we have our facial creams to get rid of our wrinkles. And we have all kinds of ways of dealing with what makes us feel unsafe, like getting old. But the real, like, that's one way to be safe. There's a limited safety that comes from living in the right place, having the right kind of protection, the right kind of bank account. But, you know, even as, an, as a sort of thought experiment, being equanimous, feeling at ease with conditions as they are, that's a much more profound, stable kind of safety not needing things to be other, not being afraid of our death. There's a great provocative Zen story. I think it's maybe from Korean Zen tradition. But anyway, some warlord storming in to some village or some town. All the people fled, you know, flee up into the mountain, except the sort of quintessential Zen master who stays in the, the temple, you know, sitting there and samadhi and concentration and the warriors you know come rushing in killing anybody who's slow burning things they get to the temple they see the monk sitting there and uh, they call the you know head warlord hey there's somebody who didn't run away he comes and says shows up in front of the monk he says don't you realize i'm someone who could easily thrust my sword right through your heart and the Zen monk, in a gentle, clear way, says, and don't you realize I'm somebody who can, will let you, or something like, let you run your sword straight through my heart, you know. And so the warlord, as these stories go, goes, bow down, bows down, and, and leaves him be. So this is a, this fearlessness, this not being afraid to die, not that we prefer to die, but just willing to receive whatever comes down the road. That's a real expression of safety and comfort and joy. It's a joy not to have to contend with things. So when it's too humid, not to make it into a problem. And it's too cold, not to make it into a problem. Too many friends, not enough friends, nothing the mind isn't doing that extra thing of turning what is unpleasant into a problem or turning what we like, what we want, into a problem. If it comes our way, great. If it doesn't come our way, great. If we can avoid this painful situation, great. If we can't avoid it, we can't avoid it. That's okay, too. So it doesn't mean we become the sort of mat the sort of rug to the world and everybody tramples over us. It's not like the mind is stupid just because it's equanimous. It still understands, still knows how to take care of itself, but there's no charge in it. 
Let me just finish this passage from Sharon. So I ended with the sentence, This acceptance is the source of our safety and confidence. When we feel unhappiness or pain, it is not a sign that things have gone terribly wrong or that we have done something wrong by not being able to control the circumstances. Pain and pleasure are constant, are constantly coming and going, and yet we can be happy. When we allow for the mystery, sometimes we discover that right in the heart of a very difficult time, right in the middle of a painful situation, there is freedom. In those moments, when we realize how much we cannot control, we can learn to let go. As we begin to understand this, we move from a mode of struggling to control what comes into our lives into a mode of simply wishing to truly connect with what is. This is a radical shift in worldview. So this is our choice. You know, this is a choice we have moment to moment. So when something is really good, you know, in, in our reach, really good. Like, uh, we have ice cream in our house, in our freezer now. So tonight, when I go home, you know, there it will be. And uh, so, in a sense, it's in my reach. And there's sort of two kinds of happinesses I can experiment with. I can experiment with the happiness of eating ice cream. There's a real, that's a real happiness for me to have something sweet and smooth and cool in my mouth. It's temporary. It's a limited kind of happiness. It doesn't last too long. If I overindulge, it doesn't feel good, right? But there is a real happiness. But there's in Sharon and the Buddha, it's, she's, they're pointing to another kind of happiness, which is there's an actual happiness, too, of being there at home with the ice cream in reach, Right? And still, it's not like the mind is differently conditioned. The mind is still conditioned to like the ice cream, to want the ice cream, to find that experience pleasurable. But the mind can realize in that moment the freedom of not needing to have it. Now, there's nothing wrong, I mean, if depending on your health and whatever, often there's nothing wrong with having a sense treat. But it's, it's interesting and much more valuable to experience the joy of not needing to have it. Now, of course, you could experience that joy and then have the ice cream. But the mind is very... <laughs> but the mind is really tricky, right? Like, okay, I'll, I'll do that and then I can also have... So we have the only way to find out if we're really okay not having it is to experiment with not having it. Because sometimes there won't be ice cream in the freezer. So that's just like when we're sitting too, you know, we now we'll take a, a painful experience. You're sitting and let's say you've made or that you're here at Calm Ground and this sits for thirty minutes, or when you Wednesday nights it's about thirty-five minutes. So you're sitting and, you know, after a while, generally, for most of us, the body has some pain, some days more, some days less. And we're feeling the pain in the body or the back somewhere. And it was, it's totally appropriate to move the body, especially if you can do it without disturbing the people around you. There's nothing wrong about moving the body. And 
at times it's really the wise and compassionate thing to do because not moving the body would mean the mind would get really contracted and just all we'd be doing is practicing struggling with our experience well that's not helpful but sometimes it's really nice to be sitting there and to know very well that you could move your leg you wouldn't disturb two people too much be totally okay but to decide not to move your leg in order to explore the joy of not being afraid of painful sensations like to 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 realize the heart that doesn't need things to be other than what they are that happiness is a deeper happiness than the happiness of relieving the pain in the knee. It doesn't mean that relieving the pain in the knee isn't a happiness. It, it's, people mis, misunderstand uh, sometimes the teachings of the Buddha. You know, the Buddha totally understands the, the happiness of getting sense, pleasant sense experience and the happiness of getting rid of unpleasant sense experience. But he's pointing out that there's these uh, attempts at happiness are always limited. They always leave us a little hungry. We get a little ice cream, and then even though it feels good to be having had that ice cream, and maybe that feeling good lasts for a few seconds, but it, it leaves the mind hungry. Now the mind wants to, well, what else can I do to be happy like this? So we, the mind is looking, like, what's on TV, or what, you know, what else can I do? to stimulate the mind in a pleasant way. Or another thing that becomes a very pervasive neurotic activity for meditators is like we learn to release tension. You know, that's one of the things that happens. It's a good thing. Is as we're sitting, we begin to realize how the mind is resisting and then it, we release that resistance. And so the body and mind become more relaxed. And we can become a little obsessed about looking for how the mind, how the body is still tensing, resisting, and then release that. And then now we got we got rid of all the gross stuff. Now we're looking subtly, like, you know, where is there subtle tension in the mind or body? Can I release that? And it's like it's like a self-stimulation. You know, we're just looking for the little high we get every time we notice what hasn't been released and then release it. And that hunger itself. It's a big burden. Like to have to be the person who gets rid of tension in the mind and body is also a burden. It's much more pleasant not to be bothered by what comes and goes, not to have to control this life, but to let life, the human life we're living, to let it be a natural process. That's the real relief. So there's two kind of happinesses. Worldly happiness means as a worldly being, as a person, we become really competent at getting positive, pleasant sense experiences and avoiding unpleasant sense experiences. That's called being a successful human being by most definitions. From a spiritual point of view, real happiness comes not by avoiding being competent in the world, right? Actually, there's a real benefit in being competent because if we're not, if we don't have some degree of confidence in being happy in the world, it's not so easy to do this deeper practice. But the deeper practice is discovering or realize a relief that comes 
from not having to be the person who's trying to be competent and to have pleasant experiences and avoid unpleasant experiences. Now, that will still happen. We don't have to become the person that looks for unpleasant experiences and avoids pleasant experiences. The Buddha rejected that path. But we're just not investing in this conditioning in the mind, the part of the mind that's conditioned to get the good and get rid of the bad. It's going to continue on its own because it's got a lot of momentum. But we're emphasizing, we're developing the heart or mind of equanimity, the heart or mind that finds joy and peace in the simplicity of letting things be as they are. Now remember, when we let things be as they are, one of the things we're letting be as it is, is our personality that has preferences. People forget that. They think when we let things be as they are, it means we're the doormat of the world, like I mentioned earlier. But that's a misunderstanding of the path. When we let things be, we're also letting our conditioning be. And sometimes our conditioning takes us into the ice cream in the freezer. And sometimes that reinforces patterns that causes tension and suffering. And sometimes it's just eating ice cream. Do you know what I mean? It's like if we can eat the ice cream without reinforcing the need to have pleasant sense experience, there's nothing damaging or destructive about having a pleasant experience. What makes eating ice cream a destructive or negative experience is if we're reinforcing a dependency in the mind. So how do you know if you're doing that? When you go home and you have ice cream, every once in a while, don't eat it. And notice, if you suffer, you're sitting there and you're suffering. What do you mean I'm not going to have any tonight? That's stupid. It's right there. There's nothing wrong. Well, if, it's, if you're dependent on it, then the dependency itself is suffering. That's the trick. There's nothing wrong with having beautiful experiences in life. But being dependent on having beautiful experiences in life is suffering. There's nothing wrong with avoiding the unpleasant things in life. But if the mind heart is dependent, attached to not having those unpleasant things, then that's suffering. So we have to explore if we're cultivating clinging or attachment or dependency, or are we cultivating freedom? And that's why in spiritual circles, you know, there's a real emphasis on exploring restraint, renunciation, letting go. Not that it has to be continuous, but there's, you know, we experiment with it. But I'll leave it here because it would be interesting to hear from people. I'm sure there are times in your life where, you know, you've explored this, like indulging in our tendency to get the good and get rid of the bad, playing, exploring, renouncing that, letting go of that and seeing what comes up. So any questions that you have about the talk or experiences you'd like to share with the group, what comes to mind? Yeah, great. Yeah, I, uh, this story about these people who want to build a mosque in New York near Ground Zero has recently hit the headlines. And I found myself uh, really having, a, I guess last night I was listening to a story just before I was going to sit. And 
getting outraged at how people who don't even live in that town are turning it into something to drive their own agenda and you know splashing it all over the national media. And so I was just in this I don't get usually get this worked up, but I was worked up last night. So I sat down. I spent half my set thinking of all the things I wanted to say to these people. Really put them in a place. Settle this once and for all. <laughs> and I, I finally got, I, I mean, I just wore myself out with it, and I finally said, this is how it is now. And just, it was a way of just dropping it, and then realizing that what I'm dealing with is my own pain. It's, it's not them, it's my pain that's happening for me right now. And so I decided to just accept the fact that I was in pain at this moment. And after a while, it occurred to me, you know, just by letting go of all the words and stuff, that I realized, you know, if I actually had a chance to say all those things, I'd probably just feed the energy that started it all in the first place and just make it worse. And so I just made me realize, just drop it. I mean, yeah, I'm concerned about it. I'm going to stay concerned about it, but realize that just by just reacting and entering into the fray like that it does no good for anybody, including me. Yeah, because that's what they did. They saw something, heard something, and fear or desire arose, and they got confused by it. You heard something, desire or fear arose in you, and your mind wanted to react to it. You just had enough wherewithal not to act it out. Now, the thing about equanimity is if we can get to the place where the mind really is okay living in a world where these crazy things happen, then maybe you can actually say something about it. And, you know, that I often find myself, like, in certain situations, I look and sometimes I can actually then enter into it in a, in a neutral way. Like, I can say something strongly, but there's no charge. I have no need that it's just coming out naturally. It's sort of an, a, the appropriate response. But a lot of times, the only way I can stay, uh, my heart can stay free, is keeping my distance. Like, I know if I get involved, I'm going to only, like you said, reinforce the pattern that's already creating this sort of destructive conversation in our country. So it's better to be quiet. It's better to restrain my participation or my reaction. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Greg. Yeah, David. Hey, Nicole. So, I don't know if it's a good question or what, but I have a lot of um, physical needs, and I can divorce my client with this older husband. And so now I have to rely on 24 hour caregivers that are working for. Most of it's college students, young people. So it's 
Yeah, well, you know, of course, I don't have any answer. <laughs> but but the, the interesting thing is, I mean, what you bring up is such a useful thing for people, for all of us to hear about, because one of the... One of the problems of not having a serious problem in our life, like a health issue like you have, Nicole, is that in a way it's like this luxury of delusion that uh, which actually, you know, this is the time for us all who, don't, who aren't sort of in this uh, difficult situation to explore what we would do, what our well, what kind of tendencies of mind we'd like to cultivate now so that when we're in that state, and most of us are going to experience that, certainly a lot of probability as we age and get close to death, most of us will experience that kind of being trapped, basically, by unpleasant conditions that we don't have that much control over. I mean, that's basically what you're sharing with us, is an example of somebody who is facing a lot of conditions with limited control over them. Not too many good options. And what we would have liked to have cultivated for many lifetimes is this understanding that I've been talking about. Like, is it true that there is a joy, a real freedom, a tangible freedom in not needing things to be other than they are? So that the the, or the happiness is there, a very deep, pervasive happiness is there that is actually independent of the particular conditions, whether we're dying, whether we've got staff that kind of are in sync with how we want to live or not. But what doesn't work well is when we're in a difficult situation, and we haven't sort of perfected that understanding, then what happens is we reach a tipping point where the capacity to practice becomes overwhelmed by the experience of pain or difficulty. You know, that the insults are happening too frequently, they're too intense, and we lose composure, and we lose confidence and faith that there's actually something to practice, some realization to develop. And we start, you know, even children, this happens, you know, when they get tired and overwhelmed, they start to revert. Whereas spiritual beings, the same thing happens. When we get worn down by pain and frustrating experience, spiritually we revert. And we revert more toward our primitive instincts, which is we believe resistance works or complaining works or, you know, whatever you might find yourself doing in that situation. And then even you might have enough perspective to realize it's not working, but there's, there's no way to stop. It's like the, we discover the mind is in a desperate place, and it is acting like a desperate animal. And all we can do at that point, of course, is to practice with that. You know, so if we're in that place of being overwhelmed, feeling desperate, the whole the point of the practice is we have to begin with the way it is right now. So can I relate? Can I be with this in a simple way? My mind is desperate. My mind is overwhelmed. It's like this. I care about this. I'm not going to. I'm not going to like judge myself for being desperate. 
I'm not going to judge myself for being complaining. I'm not going to judge myself for wondering if I should invite my husband back, <laughs> you know, my ex back, I should say. You know, uh, you're you're gonna you're a desperate animal, and you're going to allow that to be because that's the truth, and that's a step in the right direction, like making peace with the frustration and the kind of reactivity that might be alive in your mind now. That's the step. You can. Really be equanimous with that. Don't try to be equanimous with the staff yet. Just be equanimous with your reaction to not being in control of your life in a way that you've gotten used to for you know those years. As even though it wasn't perfect, it was better. It was quiet. It was quiet. <laughs> yeah. Good luck, Nicole. <laughs> you know, I, I, I mentioned to you before, I know you're used to, but put a, put a, as you need more staff, you know, make sure to put a flyer up here at the center because you might get people. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I, I think there's some truth to that. Some of us sort of remember what we've done to our parents in the past. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Nicole. Time for just um, one more short comment. If anybody else has something they'd like to share with the group, yeah, and say your name, please. Like by then, right? So once it's once that thought's out, then the question is the feeling that's left over, like when we say oh, that's ugly, that thought, you know, of disgust has kind of a visceral complement. And then the the important thing is to learn the skill, and we don't have to think about it, it should just become automatic to feel the reverberation from ha having had that thought, to feel the reverberation and to make peace with it. 
Because if we don't make peace with the visceral feeling that's left over, we're going to want to continue to think about what an idiot who would have done that. I'm glad they don't live in mind. You know, it's like the mind, because it's got this irritant now, it's got to keep thinking about it. And then we think, well, I'm going to make my yard really cool, and I'm not going to be like this person. And it just goes on and on because there's an irritant. So the key is when the mind does get caught, even if it's real quick, just initially caught, the key is to feel having, you know, fallen in that hole, to feel, oh, this hurts. And just stay right there with that hurt, oh. Even if it's very subtle, oh. Just stay right there, make peace with it. Because what that does is it cuts off the proliferation. Oh, it's like this. You know, seeing ugly lawn ornaments is like this. Feels like this. Can this be okay? Can this heart, mind, allow things to be like this right now? Instead of having to figure out what I'm going to do about the fact that there was an ugly lawn ornament. Thanks, Philip. Let's let everything go, let go of the words. Take a moment to take a breath together. And being inspired to develop equanimity, to really investigate our lived experience, our patterns of reactivity, and to discover another way of being in our lives. And we do the practice for the benefit of all beings, to be a cause for peace in the world, ease, and release from suffering. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.